0: Hello and welcome to the Cumberland Podcast. My name is Chris Fleming. I'm the Adult Ministries Coordinator for the Discipleship Ministry Team uh, with the Ministry Council of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. And uh, this is our third podcast. I'm still sick, so I don't think y'all have actually heard my real voice yet. That's coming soon. Uh, You'll be waiting in eager anticipation, I'm sure. Um, Again, this is our third podcast. Our last podcast was a lectionary starter discussion for the text for February the 3rd. Uh, so uh, if you are uh, in need of some resources very quickly as a minister, you can go back and download that episode. But I will uh, be putting those out uh, this Sunday evening before the next week. So uh, Sunday night you'll be able to download the podcast for the lectionary discussion for February 10th. And so that will give you a week to to work on your sermons. If you find it helpful, please let me know. My email address is Fleming c-f-l-e-m-i-n-g at cumberland.org. If you do listen to it and find it helpful, let me know. If you have some uh, nice critiques, also let me know because uh, we want to make sure that we put out stuff that's helpful for you. So if if that helps, then please let us know. Again, critiques, please let us know. I am going to be sharing with you a resource that uh, I read not too terribly long ago that really did help my preaching and study and kind of help the church get outside of itself. Uh, Oftentimes as ministers and Christian Christian educators of the church, uh, we can get settled in and we begin to preach to the choir. And the purpose of this resource I'm about to share with you is to remind us that the gospel is not simply a socialization tool. It's not simply a moralistic document that we want people to act better, but when we get outside of the church, if we get outside of ourselves, we're reminded there are people who are hurting. There are people who are in deep need of the gospel message, and we're reminded that the message of the gospel is is a powerful word that can take people from hurts to healing. It can take people from purposelessness existence to purpose, and so this book helps us to understand the Bible in the understanding of those people that we would consider on the margins Uh, the theological term with that would be the other and you can look that up if you want to but basically this book is trying to get us to see scripture and the proclamation of the gospel as a as a tool of power to break chains and circumstances and to bring people into the abundant life which christ has offered uh, in the gospel and so the resource is the title of it is Reading the Bible with the Damned, and it's by Bob Eckblad and it's from Westminster John Knox. You can buy it in any bookstore or any website. Uh, I have the Kindle edition, so it's in uh, e-electronic edition as well. So if you find yourself in any discipling role in the church, be it preacher or elder or Sunday school teacher, I encourage you to get it. And so before we get into the actual text uh, of the book, I would say that if we imagine Luke chapter 4 which is actually lectionary text for February third the gospel it is a way of understanding this book so like in in Luke chapter 4 Jesus is led in the wilderness uh, to be tempted by Satan he doesn't eat for forty days he doesn't drink for forty days and it's at that moment of time which Satan uh, decides to come and attack Jesus experiences then what it feels like to be in an attack he experiences what it means to be in need Like Hebrew says, we have a high priest that is able to identify with us. What happens in the wilderness, not only does Christ learn how to identify with us, but he also learns how to overcome uh, through spiritual strength. He's able to overcome Satan. And then that's the moment in which Scripture says that he was led in the power of the Spirit out, out of the wilderness and to begin his ministry. And that's the cool thing. So Christ can identify with us, but he doesn't just leave it at identification. He, in the power of the Spirit, then comes to proclaim freedom for the captives. Lame will walk, the blind will see. And that's what we're trying to do as ministers. We're not simply trying to identify with the hurts of people, but we want to connect the hurts of people with the transformative power of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel. And so, after he gets out of the wilderness, he comes to the synagogue, and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It says, Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and it said, The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began uh, by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so, like I said, Jesus not only identifies with the marginalized, but then he sees himself as a tool by which God has sent to perform the task of liberating people from their hurts and and their situations. He is going to proclaim the power of God uh, to transform lives. And that's what we have to do as ministers as well, or Christian educators or so on, But Jesus didn't just leave it there either. He acknowledges that maybe the people in the synagogue have lost the thought that God's love is not simply to make us comfortable, not simply to uh, preserve a a certain culture in the church, but instead we're supposed to be outward focused. And it was that outward focus that Jesus had that got him in trouble with the Pharisees. We like to think that, um, that he was crucified for reasons of blasphemy and so on, but those were just made up. It was because Jesus was radical in the sense that he wanted to make sure that everybody was able to hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see that in the rest of Luke chapter 4 when the Pharisees look at him and say, isn't this just Joseph's son? Jesus comes back to him and says, "Uh, I may be just Joseph's son, but a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. Jesus further then uh, tells them about two instances in which, uh, in Isaiah or in Elijah's time, when the drought was on the land, uh, Elijah did not stop and make sure that everybody in Judah or Israel was taken care of. Instead, he went to the widow of Zarephath, where she was able to live and also heal her son. Then he goes on further to say, look, there was a lot of uh, people who were affected by leprosy in the time of Naaman, but uh, Elijah healed Naaman the Syrian, and no one in Israel. And what happened there is is that the people within the synagogue got angry because, hey, we're supposed to be uh, God's chosen people, and all of a sudden this guy is saying, well, well, we're supposed to be outward focused. Everybody's important. Why am I not important? So that's kind of where we're at uh, to start this book, that the proclamation of the gospel is to heal, to set the oppressed free, that the blind would see, that the lame would walk, And this is what it's for. It's not to simply build ourselves up uh, each and every time we open up the door of the church. So it's at this point that Ekblad uh, helps us to see past our blinders and gives us tools by which we begin to read scriptures with the marginalized in mind. We read it from the standpoint of the widow of Zarephath. We read it from the standpoint of Naaman. And so... um, in each of the chapters, the following chapters, he highlights a group of marginalized people in society uh, that he has done Bible studies with, and he kind of gives some, some uh, observations on, on what, he'd, what he's found. In this book, Eggblad gives two pitfalls that he sees with the uh, mainstream church. Uh, the, one, the first is that he writes that we have domesticated God and domesticated Scripture uh, because it's the nature of an organization to subdue the edges, right? We like clear identifying marks. A church has an identity, and it seeks to appropriate that identity to its members. And this is simply the way of denominations and churches. Uh, Presbyterians are different from Baptists, who are different from Episcopalians, and so on. Uh, once we have an established understanding of who God is and what God desires, then our whole system is meant to, uh, to appropriate that we begin to write church documents and commentaries construct theologies and confessions and liturgies that reinforce our understanding of who god is and how god works and what pleases god but what happens then when a church does this is that it makes then uh, the energy or makes the effort of the church to reinforce those things and it shifts very subtly from uh, proclamation of the gospel into proclamation of the gospel to the people that we like and also the formation of, of a particular church body. That's not a knock on anybody, it's just the way of organizations. Organizations do not last if people aren't all in the same ball game and so that's just what we do. Everything exists to support the whole. Uh, so then what happens? God then is domesticated, if you will. Scripture then is read with ourselves in mind, not as a proclamation of liberation or transformation to those who are outside of our group. It's just an inward focus that happens. God no longer moves without consent from the organization, if you will. Uh, we become the mediators of God grace, God's grace. So that him, just as just as I am, is 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 sometimes not saying very truthfully in our in our churches. Uh, sometimes it's hey dust yourself off, put on a Clean set of clothes and then come to church uh, because that's become the focus of the church. Related to this, then, uh, Eggblad says the mainstream church has fallen into moralism uh, because the institution uses scripture as a rules and regulations uh, manual. It no longer is simply meant to be the good news of God in Christ, instead, uh, it's used to say, This is what we believe, this is how you have to believe it. And if you don't, then you can't be part of our church. And the thing is, in in today's society, uh, there is a strong sense in which we have to protect our Christian values or we have to protect our identity as Christians and so on and so forth. But even in saying that, we have to at least acknowledge by viewing the gospel in this way, we cut off its power what we believe as Christians is that someone hears the good news the gospel of Jesus Christ and we believe that the Holy Spirit then transforms their inner life in which they will become that which God has called them to be what Egblad writes is this view of scripture is related to the false assumption that God and salvation prioritizes right and obedient behavior over the good news of God's gracious unconditional love toward us in other words the gospel becomes a list of do's and don'ts uh, and our scripture preaching becomes moralism, saying that if you don't believe these things or if you don't do these things, then you you will not experience the grace of God. But that is not how uh, historically Paul or anyone preached the gospel. They believed that there was a power in the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ, that sinners could be transformed, and that then the Holy Spirit resides in a person, and that person then is changed from glory to glory, if you will. That the power is in the message, not the moralistic view that we put on, um, on scripture. There needs to be a recognition, at the very least, that the gospel in and of itself has the power to free people from whatever situation, whatever sin entangles them, what not. That there is power in simply proclaiming that uh, Christ has lived, Christ has died, Christ has risen again, and calls you into a relationship. I think the major thesis of Eckblad's book is simply that we are facilitators of an awesome message. We are facilitating the message of God in Christ to a sinner and we're not manufacturers of moralism and I think that's deeply important for our churches today. So in the second chapter of Egblad's book uh, he challenges the mainstream church that Genesis is primarily a text about the origins of the earth and, and personally I do get kinda tired of that as well. Um, that is a debate that is in a lot of our churches and I think well okay that's, that's what I think. He relates a time when he was reading the Genesis text with a group of inmates, and he realized that it didn't really matter to them about the origins of the earth, whether it was a 24-hour literal day, if it was 6,000 years ago, or billions of years ago. Instead, he realized that Genesis was understood as a text which God hovers over something that's chaotic, and he's able to form it into a perfect place where God and humanity can have a relationship. Right. So if you're reading Scripture... With a group of inmates, trust me, they're not worried about uh, the same thing we're worried about in doctrinal stances, but they are worried about whether God can take this created, chaotic life which they are in, and they can that it can be transformed into something good, where a relationship between God and His love can be fostered into into something beautiful. So, at the end of the Genesis account, God calls everything He's created good, even the the person who is in the prison. They can be redeemed from. What society says, they're no good, but they can be good. In the third chapter, uh, Eggblad deals with the fall narrative from Genesis. All right, so the traditional reading sees God as a judge by which he gives commandments, and they weren't followed. So therefore, the consequences of that was of original sin. And what happens is people then come to understand God as the divine judge, which in and of itself is good theology. But if you're in a study with people who have been placed in front of a judge most of their life and they've heard that uh, guilty verdict and now they're in prison, what what good is that for them? It, re- it reinforces that moralistic understanding of God uh, that we were talking about earlier. Now what Egblad does then is points out that in almost every study, that he did in the mainstream church, it focused on the negative command of not to eat of the tree. Hardly ever did anyone ever say anything about the first command which says everything in the garden is good to eat and he told Adam and Eve to enjoy everything, right? There was there was a sense of positiveness in that first command. It was go and enjoy be everything I've created you to be. Instead, we focus on the restrictive command, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? If we understood God in the light of the first command, we see God's not necessarily the judge, but he's one that encourages good things in every aspect of our life and every environment that we're in. And then we see him then as a precautionary God who says, uh, don't make things bad on yourself. Keep yourself from damaging yourself, Right? Uh, follow the good, don't do the bad, and if you view God in that sense, God becomes more like a physician or a mentor and not a judge. Then in chapter 4, Egblad challenges the assumptions of the mainstream church of using biblical characters as morally righteous individuals, and we fall into this trap all the time. Oftentimes people who are in great need can't relate to biblical heroism because they know that they could never measure up to that. Instead, we should at least, at the very least, say uh, almost every single character in the biblical story was awful. They were the people in the margins. They were the other. They were the sinners. They were the ones who were in great need. Uh, But God used them to produce great things. And so don't preach. So the simple example would be Joseph. If we preach all the virtues of Joseph, which is very good uh, that he didn't give in to the temptation of sleeping with Potiphar's wife, that he didn't give in to the temptation of revenge. Uh, That's one thing, but also to recognize that Joseph, at the very beginning, had his flaws, and God was able to work through him to create something great in him. So be careful when we preach the moralism, because moralism nobody can uh, perfectly attain, but we can attain that God can do something special within us. He can transform our hearts so that we can do great things that God has called us to do. In chapters five and six, Eckblad focuses on the Exodus passage, and there's a lot there, and it is the uh, point of liberation theology that uh, so often gets in our churches and starts uh, fights within denominations and so on. But I think what he brings up is good here. Oftentimes, the mainstream church places Moses and Israel uh, at the center of God's love work, loves God's love and work, and this is true. Uh, but the opposite is also true in this: that God does not support a corrupt system of human violence and oppression. All right, and so uh, Moses becomes one who, who was at the top, uh, voluntarily gives himself down, and this way he's a type of Christ. He has his own uh, wilderness wanderings, and then he comes back as a as a prophet of the people in which God takes those who are outside of the margins in society or uh, the weak in society and they right the wrong, so to speak, and they come out of the system of oppression. There is a sense in which the Exodus event is for the community the same that it is for individuals within the church, that we were in bondage to sin and that we, through the power of Christ, have been brought out of that and then we go back to the battlefield and then giving up our a place of of salvation or a place of righteousness in order to go battle and call people forth out of that uh, sin or that system that is oppressing them and so they can have a uh, salvation experience with Jesus Christ. Chapter seven focuses on the images of God in the Psalms. And this is a worthy discussion. Uh, Every single one of us have different life events and we all view authority, we all view God in a different way. Uh, if you've been abused all your life, you're going to understand God a certain way than if you haven't. If you have lived a hard life, you're going to understand God different than someone else. Uh, the Psalms have this great imagery of God, and when you're working with the marginalized or those who are outside, uh, don't be afraid to use the Psalms that aren't exactly churchy in order to express a real authentic struggle between who uh, God is and who people think God is. And that. The Psalms have been underpreached and understudied in the church, uh, for this very reason. A lot of times they're hard to they're hard to preach because they're not exegetical text. Instead, they're texts that simply show people's struggles before God and the reaching out to ask God for protection and for clarification and for for help and so on and so forth. Uh, when you read the Psalms with someone who's outside the church or doesn't understand God at all, it is read differently than when we read it inside the church. I think I'm going to skip over chapter 8. It was probably one of the least helpful chapters uh, to me, but it is uh, Eggblad talking about the understanding of the atonement and different atonement theories uh, with those outside the mainstream church. Um, It's good to read. Uh, I think at the very least I did appreciate his thought on how maybe to refrain uh, or reframe our rhetoric of the uh, atonement, Uh, but... I can't say I completely agree with him on on chapter eight, but I invite you to read it as well. Uh, Chapter nine ends the book, and it's an exposition uh, of Paul in the context of undocumented immigrants. And so it's a good book to have at this time, or at least to read over that chapter. Uh, It talks about the images of borders and crossing into new territories. Uh, It has a new light uh, when Paul writes about becoming new in Christ and leaving old places and old practices. And so I do believe that this book can help revive uh, the church or at least take that inward focus and push it outside. I think it also encourages uh, people within the church to take up ministries that expose them to people outside of the walls of the church uh, because Christ came to set us free. And most of us within the church have experienced that and maybe we've taken it for granted but there is a need for ministry within the local church that proclaims the goodness of God and that shocking message of Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose again, and he invites you into an abundant life, a life of, of, of the greatest blessings and relationship with God. And so I encourage you to get the book. Again, I hope you have found this to be um, useful, and I encourage you to uh, contact me at C. Fleming, C-F-L-E-M-I-N-G, at cumberland.org. Let me know what you think, and uh, if you have any resources that you think should be spotlighted for other pastors and and, and Christian educators of the church, or whatever people would find interesting, uh, please just send me an email, and we'll, we'll get to work on it, and hopefully we can share that information with everybody. Again, it's our goal in prayer that our church is just a very strong church, that we are uh, integral in the part of God and redeeming the world and so uh, let me pray for us uh, gracious God we uh, ask that uh, our hearts and minds uh, are in one accord in the proclamation of the gospel I pray for uh, each of our churches that we become a place where people experience the risen Christ and that their hearts are transformed and their lives are changed and this world is better because Uh, we've preached and that we've cared and that we've been laborers in the harvest field. So bless our churches this week. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.